I'm Pastor Mark, and we welcome you to this Covenant Sunday. Cindy and I got a wonderful surprise on Friday. Our boy Cooper came home from Whitworth five days earlier than we expected him. He had worked everything out. He supposedly got all his exams taken. I hope that's true. And, uh, and, he was, and I was surprised at how excited this made me. I suppose it is as simple as this. Uh, not only do I love my son, I like my son. I like being with him. He is a good companion. And the fact that he wants to come home early to us says that he wants to be with us too. Now, I'm not deluding myself. I know that every extra day home means another one of his mom's home-cooked meals. So that's a big driver for him. And I know that our grocery bill is going to skyrocket this week. But I will happily foot the bill because he's my beloved son. And I'm so glad to have him home with us. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about this Sermon on the Mount. And I had not paid attention to something that jumped out at me after I had this revelation about, about Cooper. Jesus is teaching what it means to be a, a revolutionary disciple, but I had not noticed how often Jesus refers in the sermon to our relationship with the Father. In fact, in Matthew 6 alone, which is where we are right now, Jesus uses the word Father ten times. It's an enormously important theme. Jesus seems to be saying that when we live His way, when we obey Him, when we live as disciples of His, even when it goes absolutely counter to culture, one of the greatest blessings that's going to result is that we are going to grow closer to God. In the end, isn't that why we are together? Isn't that why we do this? We long for a more intimate relationship with God our Father, don't we? Nod your heads in agreement. We long for a more intimate relationship with the Father. So think about that as we're studying the Word today and listening to what God has to say to us. The the, the bottom line for us is this. How would we live in relationship, in a deeper, more intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. This is going to be our last Sunday in the Sermon on the Mount for a while. We come to my most despised passage, beginning with verse 25. It will become immediately clear why this is so. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, Or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you will, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Let's say verse 33 together. 
but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. This is your command, Lord. Uh, Help us to obey it. Help us to believe that God is trustworthy, that our Father loves us and cares for us so that we don't have to be anxious like the little faiths of this story. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you notice the first word of our passage? What is it? Therefore, therefore, what is it really important to do? Anytime you come to a, a therefore in the Bible, you've got to find out what the therefore is. Therefore, right. So, first thing to do is turn back to the context. Why does Jesus say therefore? It's referring to what came before that. And what comes before the therefore is Jesus' sermon on money. That's what he was talking about last week. If you were not with us last week, you say, whew, dodged a bullet. Yes, you did. But I'm going to give it a little bit of a bullet right now. The context that Jesus is teaching, the therefore, is set in this context of the sermon on money. Last week, Jesus warned us, do not hoard for yourself your wealth. He didn't say don't save. He said don't hoard wealth that you could never spend great piles of your wealth. Because if you do, all it's going to do is rot away. You won't take a dime with you and you will have wasted the opportunity to use it for important things. Jesus says, instead of hoarding, I want you to invest your treasure in the work of the kingdom. And then there's that great line, for where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. That's such an important word. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if we are not investing in the work of the Lord, it probably suggests that your heart doesn't care about the work of the Lord. Because your money goes where your heart is. Where your heart is, there your treasure is. If if you are not interested, if you are not investing, it probably means your heart isn't there. Your instinct is to say, let someone else foot the bill. I asked a very simple question last week. If the only evidence someone had was your checkbook register, would anyone have a clue that you're a Christian? It's a good question, isn't it? Where you put your money is a sure way to know where your heart already lives, and it is a way to train your heart where you want it to go if it's not there. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, Jesus says. And then he goes on to talk about this great battle that takes place between two gods. You remember? The Lord Yahweh, and what was the other Lord? Mammon. Yeah, that's the word that means wealth. He pictures this great battle between the Lord God, Yahweh, and the Lord Mammon. And Jesus says it is impossible to serve both of those gods. If we love Mammon, if we consume more and more, if we never can utter those, utter those ultimate words of contentment, I have enough. If we can't ever utter those words, then we are in bondage, he says, to an abusive God. And it is impossible if we are in bondage to mammon to love our God, the only one who is really worthy of our love. Interestingly, this, this week is Black Friday. An appropriate name, I think, given our conversation. And as we flock to the temples of commerce early enough to beat out all of the other worshipers, and we credit card our ways into deeper debt, it might be worth remembering what a liar Lord Mammon really is. 
He promises everything and he takes it all. That was what we talked about last week. Afterwards, a friend came to me and said, you blew it. You missed an opportunity. There are people out here who want to give, but they don't know how to give. And you didn't even mention Financial Peace University. So I'm sorry, he's right. FPU, we've had 400 people go through and begun to see real transfer. How many have gone through FPU? See, and they've experienced real transformation. Next time the class is offered, you might want to take a look at it. Another one was a little more cynical. He said, you blew it. You should have passed the offering plate after the sermon. You would have taken a bigger haul. (laughs) Appreciated the sentiment, but I honestly, I said, you know, this is not about getting one big big offering. This is about changing the hearts of our people. It is about raising up disciples whose hearts long to be generous. This is, this is what we are uh, about here. Anyway, that's what Jesus was referring to when he comes to this passage. He says, therefore, he says, therefore, because my disciples have hearts that are generous and they give to the things God cares about. Therefore, because my disciples love God instead of loving Lord Mammon. Therefore, he says, I have some life-changing advice for you because of those things. Did you see what his life-changing advice is? It's three words. What are they? Do not worry. Say it again. In fact, he goes on. Do not worry about your life. This is a command of Jesus. How many disobey this command of Jesus? I have shared with you that I disobey this command of Jesus. In fact, I believe that anxiety is one of my spiritual gifts. When I get anxious about something, I grind away. I cannot sleep. It is on my face. Everyone, everyone on the staff knows. They can tell. I cannot cover it up. And I confess it to you not as a point of pride. It is a point. It is a, it, this is confession. Anxiety is one of my abiding sins. I'm deadly serious. Anxiety is one of my abiding sins. In fact, when I fill out my covenant card, this is going to be one of the things that I am going to be laying before the Lord, trying to be better as his disciple. Every time I read this passage, it's like my own personal confession of sin. Because that word worry jumps out there. It haunts me six times in this passage. Do you know what the Greek word for worry is related to? I've got a volunteer that's going to help me demonstrate that. Just stand right here. You are worried and you should be. Turn around face them. The... The, the Greek word worry is, uh, comes from, is reference to, to this. It means choke, comes from choke or strangled. Can you, can you think of a more apt word for worry than this? The idea that when we worry about the things of life, it, the bony fingers of worry slip their, slip their hands around our throat and begin to choke and strangle the life out of us. Just stay right there. You're doing just fine. <laughs> You know, he is one of our elders, and I enjoy this so much. Uh, I'll get you back. <laughs> you know, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, I want to talk turkey about this for a moment. Jesus talks about money not to bump up our giving, not to make us feel guilty. He talks about money because when money owns us instead of us owning money, this is what happens. It chokes the life out of us. The anxiety, the, the struggle, the concern 
It chokes us. That's what worry does to us. Say thanks to Art for putting up with this. Jesus' stern command is, do not worry about your life. And then he goes on to give some examples, frankly, examples that on the face of it don't seem to be really very relevant to us in this first world reality. You know, when you tell the third world believers, don't worry about what you eat, don't worry about what you're going to drink, that means something to them because there are people in the world. Most of us Americans do not worry about whether we're going to eat this next meal. In fact, most of us Americans ought to worry about eating less of this next meal. We don't need as much food as we eat. Our third world brothers and sisters need more. And of course, until about two weeks ago, I would have said then the idea of worrying about what you drink when we can go to the, the water faucet and just turn it on would have seemed silly. That is, until our family and friends in Canterwood had to be, begin boiling their water to kill the E. coli bacteria in there. Suddenly, you got a taste, didn't you, of what billions of people around the world experience when they drink water that is filthy every day. It was actually a gift, I think, to share, to understand more about the rest of the world. So, but when we hear, don't worry about what you eat, don't worry about what you drink, most of, most of it doesn't seem to, to really be relevant to us. And then we come to that next one, don't worry about what you wear. And there you stumble upon the great, the quintessential American obsession. What do we look like? How do we present ourselves? What do people think about us? What is the impression that I'm making? Do they like me? Do they not like me? I met with a young woman this week. It was a very hard conversation. And she told me, I do not like the way I look. And then she spent the next minutes telling me exactly what about her body she didn't like about herself. It was painful to listen to. And she was deadly earnest, and it was hard. We look at these airbrushed pictures of supermodels, and we hate ourselves by comparison And what we can't fix with our fad diets or with our plastic surgery, then we just cover up with beautiful clothes. And to all of this, Jesus said, would you please stop? Would you please stop worrying about life? Would you please stop worrying about whether you will have enough to eat or whether you will have enough to drink? He says, stop obsessing and trust God. And then he gives examples, doesn't he? Examples right out of nature. He says, what about the birds? Look at the birds. They don't worry. And yet God cares for every one of them, even the littlest sparrow. Then he asks this great question, are you not worth more than a bird? Are you not worth more than a bird? Do you think God cares less for you than he does a bird? I I do think it's worth noting that the bird may be the hardest working of all of God's creatures. You ever watched a sparrow as it flits hither and thither? They're constantly on the move. They're kind of like Deb Robertson with feathers. (laughs) So Jesus is not saying to the feckless out there, he is not saying don't work hard, but he is saying don't be strangled by your labor. Trust God. And what about clothes? Is Jesus saying, I want you to wear burlap from now on? That's not what he says. He celebrates beautiful things. He even lifts up the beauty of Solomon's court. And then he said, but compared to that, have you ever been to wilderness, to, to paradise at Rainier? Have you ever been there during wildflower season? He said, by comparison, they're just wearing rags. All you got to do is look at that to know how much God loves beautiful things. Jesus isn't saying, don't dress beautifully. Jesus isn't saying, don't enjoy beautiful things. He's saying, don't be strangled with your concern 
about your appearance. Trust God. And when we don't, when we don't do these things, when we worship the Lord Mammon, when we worry about our labor, worry about our living, worry about our reputation and our appearance, Jesus has a nickname for us. Did you find it in verse 30? Little faiths. Say it. You know, it says, oh, you of little faith in the text, but actually that's a churchified version of the word. The Greek word literally is little faiths. In fact, Jesus made the word up. He invented this word he, to chide me. I'm sure I can hear him. Every time I start to worry about one thing or another, I can hear Mark James' little faith tune. What have I to do with you? He calls us little faiths. But behind that gentle chide, I think, lies a very serious discipleship issue. And here it is. Functional atheism. Would you say that, please? Functional atheism. What is that? When we who claim to be followers of Jesus do not trust him enough to believe that he will provide for our needs in every way, then we are functional atheists. We say one thing. But what we really believe is something entirely different. We say there's a God, but we don't believe he's big enough to care for us. We don't really believe God is trustworthy. We don't really believe God is capable. We don't really believe God will love us and will care for us. We don't really believe the incredible promise that we find in verse 33 that every one of us probably has memorized over the years. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. What a promise. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all of this stuff, all of this stuff that the Father knows you need, He's going to take care of that too. But if you chase after this other stuff, if you worry about this other stuff, not only will you not get it all, it will carve days off of your life. The ironic statement, who of you by worrying will add one day to your life? We know, don't we, that must have been offered tongue-in-cheek. The more we worry, the more days we're chopping off of life. This takes us back then to that therefore, this reference to this whole issue of wealth and, and material things. Some people are not generous just because they don't want to be generous. They want to spend everything on themselves and they really don't care enough about the work of Jesus to inconvenience or impoverish themselves in the slightest. If this describes you, may I just say, I pity you? Because that means that you have a very hard heart that is very far from God. You cannot be close to God and not know the giving, generous heart of God. If you have a heart that is not generous, you have a heart that is far from God. And you are to be pitied and it is something to be feared. But I'll bet more people here, more people don't give, not because they don't want to, but because they are afraid. I, I have read somewhere that the number one fear is that, uh, of, of older adults is that their money will run out before they die. We live in anxiety. And so people are strangled with anxiety that God cannot be trusted and they cling to their money and they rob God of his tithes and they let others pay the way and they, they ignore the hungry and the poor because they are afraid that if they give too much, they don't believe God can make up the difference. At the heart of it, I think that much of the stinginess in the church is really a matter of this. We are afraid because we are functional atheists. We don't really trust God. But this issue of anxiety is more than about money, isn't it? 
We are worry warts about all sorts of things. So for the rest of you who are in that boat with me, who are worry warts about money or relationships or kids or global warming or global cooling or the poor polar bears or whatever, what do we do about it? And it seems it's very simple and yet very hard. Jesus says, don't. Jesus says, don't. Don't worry. Don't worry about your life. You think, could it really be that easy? Just don't. I guess so, because Paul picks up the same thing. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And we say, well, this sounds so simplistic. I'm telling you, it works. I've been practicing it, because I've got to practice something. I practiced it this morning when, we, when our screens weren't working and it looked like for Covenant Sunday we weren't going to have any words. I say, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I, I left the sound booth so I would not, not worry in their presence. Don't worry. There's a point where worry slips his bony fingers around your throat and at that point you have two choices, don't you? You begin to play along. You go along with it. You, you say, you're right, that is something to worry about. And so you, you, you grind away on that anxiety and you, you spin out all of the possible scenarios, the horrible conversations that you're going to have and the horrible consequences that might accrue to, you, to it. You put your mind on the spin cycle. Any of you ever do that when worry comes along? Come on. That's one choice. That's, that is certainly one choice. Or you can follow the command of Jesus The minute that worry appears on the fringe of your mind and starts to wrap its fingers around your throat, you say, don't you dare. Take your hands off of me. Do not worry. David used to talk to himself in the Psalms all the time. Bless the Lord, O my soul, he would say. Our version, according to Jesus, do not worry. Stop it. Don't let yourself go there. And I have been practicing this. Actually, more than just this morning, I've been practicing it this week. I am concerned about Ellis and Rachel White's visa situation. I think it's insane. We're working very hard to convince our authorities that the Whites are not terrorists. And I I think we're making groundwork, making some gain there. But there's only so much that we can do. And and we've done it. And and I find myself still wanting to worry it, think it through, consider all of the possible outcomes. And this week, as I was really reflecting on this passage, I told myself, stop it. Don't worry. Does God know about Rachel and Ellis' situation? Does God know who it is that is holding back or will give the visa? Does God have a plan for them, for our church? One way or the other. Does God have this in control or not? And I believe he does. And so I'm trying to step back from it. And every time that worry begins to hover, I have a command for it. Don't. Say that word. Don't. This is more than just mind over matter, though, isn't it? What I'm really saying when I shout, don't to worry, what I'm really saying is, Father, I know you love me. Father, I know you love this church. Father, I know you are great and powerful and good. I know that you know what I need to live and what we need to do ministry, and I trust you to provide it. So rather than focus on all the things that are going to cause me anxiety and turn me into a worrier or a fretter or a hoarder, I'm going to turn my heart to you. I'm going to focus on you. 
I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and I'm going to take you at your word that you will add all the other stuff I need. When you think about it, in the end, is that not what it means to be a revolutionary disciple of Jesus? To trust God completely for the sake of His Son? To trust in God's goodness and His nearness and His kindness and in His greatness as our Heavenly Father? To trust that more than anything else. The question that this text poses to me and to you is, do you? Do you? Trust God in whatever your situation. For some of us, it's easy right now. For some of us who are clinging to life or watching loved ones cling to life or who have still not gotten that job, it's harder. Either we got to decide God is powerful and in control, even when it looks like that, or we are functional atheists. Because it just depends upon my circumstances, whether God is good, God or not. For weeks we have been journeying through this Sermon on the Mount. I hope that this has been a blessing to you. It has been a challenge to me and a blessing as I think more what it means to be a devoted follower of Christ. Not a pew sitter, not a fan, but a follower of Christ. There are some here who this morning might be visiting. All of this doesn't make sense to you. You are not serious about being a disciple of Jesus, and so this might sound like gobbledygook right now. Uh, Because I'm sure that there are some who have not yet decided to make this journey. But for a lot of us, I think there's a longing, isn't there, for us to be found to be more faithful followers of Jesus. Not Sunday morning, one hour nod to God and then go about our work, but, but true devoted followers of Christ. And so that's what prompted this series of sermons, and, and, and that's what this morning is about, this Covenant Sunday. Could I ask you to find your covenant card? It's there in front of you somewhere. If you didn't bring yours today, there's in the pews with your envelope. Pull that out, would you please? This covenant card is an opportunity for us to kind of pull together everything we've been talking about these last few weeks, these last many weeks. As you're getting one of these in your hand, let me just say that this is kind of collected all of the various things that we've been talking about. It gives you suggestions. I'm going to read the Bible more, pray, or give, or fast, or serve, or I have relationship. And then you have some specific things that you can write down. We have not tried to write this for you. We are asking you to ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do to be a more faithful disciple of Jesus? And we want you to write that down. And so maybe, this is a, maybe the things you're dealing with are a relationship that needs patching up or workaholism that needs to be addressed. Maybe what needs to be dealt with in your life is sloppy worship habits that make Sunday morning at worship a, an option for you unless something better comes along. Maybe it's prayerlessness or it's neglect of the Scripture. Maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting you to forgive an enemy. Maybe the Spirit is convicting you to stop being such a cheapskate. Maybe the Spirit has convicted you to stop worrying or to serve or to go on a mission or tithe or fast or make a disciple or share your faith with others. So I'm asking you to ask the Spirit, what do you want me to do? What, don't do everything. Do one or two or three things. We'll come back to this. We'll do this again. And then I would like you to write it down. I'd invite you to put it in the envelope. I'd like you to seal it. No one's going to see this but you and the Lord. And then I want you to write your address on the front. We will collect these, and then we're going to mail these back to you in three months. 
You're not going to impress anybody because no one's going to read what you have. And if you put an offering in here, we're never going to get it. We'll just mail it back to you in three months, so don't put any, any money in here. So we're going to take a moment here, and we're going to fill this out and seal it up, and we're going to bring it forward, and we got um, baskets up there. And then we're going to have pastors and elders that are standing up. If after you've dropped this in, if you would just like a, a brief blessing on this time of covenant, just come up and we'll pronounce a blessing on you. Or you may return to your seat. You're going to do this on your own, in your own time. And, uh, and let's see what the Lord wants to do as he blesses our church, as we seek to build, take him at his word, that if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all of these other things will be added unto us. So would you join me just in a time of silence? Jot these things down on your card. And then after a minute or two, begin to make your way forward. I love about this church, but the fact that you all were ready to come up here, you didn't take time to fill your cards out, they were ready, suggests that you were taking this seriously. You came prepared for worship. You came prepared to make your covenant with the Lord. God bless you for that. Let's worship God together as we sing together one verse, I surrender all. Amen.